Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You have just become a member of the House of Lords in Great Britain. The date is November 18, 1777. William Pitt, Earl of Chatham, is speaking. He is giving what will one day be considered the greatest oration of his life. The war in America had been raging for two years at this point. But now, news has just reached England that Burgoyne has been defeated by the rebel army at Saratoga. Debate over the war in Britain's most promising colonial empire, America, has already raged in the House of Commons. It has now moved to the House of Lords. You are among the few who believe that England should end the war. Having come to realize that the war being waged against the crown in America will not be ending soon. And with Burgoyne's loss at Saratoga, your enemy, the French, may soon be entering the war as Washington's allies. This, you believe, is the time to make peace with the colonies before the chance is gone forever. My lords. My lords, I cannot concur in a blind and servile address which approves and endeavors to sanctify the monstrous measures which have heaped disgrace and misfortune upon us. This, my lords, is a perilous and tremendous moment. It is not a time for adulation. The smoothness of flattery cannot now avail, cannot save us in this rugged and awful crisis. It is now necessary to instruct the throne in the language of truth. But yesterday, and England might have stood against the world. Now, none so poor to do her reverence. I use the words of a poet, but though it be poetry, it is no fiction. It is a shameful truth that not only the power and strength of this country are wasting away and expiring, but her well-earned glories, her true honor, and substantial dignity are sacrificed. France, my lords, has insulted you. She has encouraged and sustained America. And whether America be wrong or right, the dignity of this country ought to spurn at the officious insult of French interference. The ministers and ambassadors of those who are called rebels and enemies are in Paris. In Paris, they transact the reciprocal interests 
of America and French. Can there be a more mortifying insult? Can even our ministers sustain a more humiliating disgrace? Do they dare to resent it? Do they presume even to hint a vindication of their honor and the dignity of the state by requiring the dismission and the plenipotentiaries of America? Such is the degradation to which they have reduced the glories of England. The people whom they affect to call contemptible rebels, but whose growing power has at last obtained the name of enemies. The people with whom they have engaged this country in war, and against whom they now command our implicit support in every measure of desperate hostility. This people, despised as rebels, or acknowledged as enemies, are abetted against you. Supplied with every military store, their interests consulted, and their ambassadors entertained by your inveterate enemy. And our ministers dare not interpose with dignity or effect is this the honor of a great kingdom? Is this the indignant spirit of England? Who but yesterday gave law to the House of Bourbon? <coughs> My lords, the dignity of nations demands a decisive conduct in a situation like this. My lords, this ruinous and ignominious situation where we cannot act with success nor suffer with honor calls upon us to remonstrate in the strongest and loudest language of truth, to rescue the ear of majesty from the delusions which surround it. The desperate state of our arms abroad is in part known. No man thinks more highly of them than I do. I love and honor the English troops. I know their virtues and their valor. I know they can achieve anything except impossibilities. And I know that the conquest of English America is an impossibility. You cannot, I venture to say it, you cannot conquer America. Your armies in the last war, <clears throat> your armies in the last war affected everything that could be affected. And what was it? It cost a numerous army under the command of a most able general, Lord Amherst, now a noble lord in this house, a long and laborious campaign to expel 5,000 Frenchmen from French America. My lords, you cannot conquer America. What is your present situation there? We do not know the worst, but we know that in three campaigns, we have done nothing and suffered much. Besides the sufferings, perhaps total loss of the Northern force, the best appointed army that ever took the field, commanded by Sir William Howe, has retired from the American lines. He was obliged to relinquish his attempt and with great delay and danger to adopt a new and different plan of operations. We shall soon know, and in any event, have reason to lament what may have happened since. As to conquest, therefore, my lords, I repeat, it is impossible. You may swell every expense and every effort still more extravagantly. Pile and accumulate every assistance you can buy or borrow. Traffic and barter with every little pitiful German prince that sells and sends his subjects to the shambles of a foreign prince. Your efforts are forever vain and impotent. Doubly so from this mercenary aid on which you rely. 
for it irritates to an incurable resentment the minds of your enemies, to overrun them with the mercenary sons of raping and plunder, devoting them and their possessions to the rapacity of hireling cruelty. If I were an American, as I am an Englishman, while a foreign troop was landed in my country, I never would lay down my arms. Never, never, never. Your own army is infected with the contagion of these illiberal allies. The spirit of plunder and of raping is gone forth among them. I know it. And notwithstanding what the noble Earl, Lord Percy, who moved the address, has given us his opinion of the American army, I know from authentic information and the most experienced officers that our discipline is deeply wounded. While this is notoriously our sinking situation, America grows and flourishes while our strength and discipline are lowered. Hers are rising and improving. But, my lords, who is the man that, in addition to these disgraces and mischiefs of our army, has dared to authorize and associate to our arms the tomahawk and scalping knife of the savage, to call into civilized alliance the wild and inhuman savage of the woods, to delegate to the merciless Indian the defense of disputed rights, and to wage the horrors of his barbarous war against our brethren? My lords, these enormities cry aloud for redress and punishment unless thoroughly done away. It will be a stain on the national character. It is a violation of the Constitution, and I believe it is against the law. It is not the least of our national misfortunes that the strength and character of our army are thus impaired. Infected with the mercenary spirit of robbery and raping, familiarized to the horrid scenes of savage cruelty, it can no longer boast of the noble and generous principles which dignify a soldier, no longer sympathize with the dignity of the royal banner, nor feel the pride, pomp, and circumstance of glorious war that make ambition virtue. What makes ambition virtue? The sense of honor. But is the sense of honor consistent with the spirit of wonder or the practice of murder? Can it flow from mercenary motives or can it prompt to cruel deeds? Besides these murderers and plunderers, let me ask our ministers, what other allies have they acquired? What other powers have they associated in their cause? Have they entered into alliance with the king of gypsies? Nothing, my lords, is too low or too ludicrous to be consistent with their counsels. The independent views of America have been stated and asserted as the foundation of this address. My lords, no man wishes for the due dependence of America on this country more than I do. To preserve it and not confirm that state of independence into which your measures hitherto have driven them is the object which we ought to unite in attaining. The Americans, contending for their rights against arbitrary exactions, I love and admire. It is the struggle of free and virtuous patriots 
but contending for independency and total disconnection from England? As an Englishman, I cannot wish them success. For in a due constitutional dependency, including the ancient supremacy of this country and regulating their commerce and navigation, consists the mutual happiness and prosperity of both England and America. She derived assistance and protection from us, and we reaped from her the most important advantages. She was indeed the fountain of our wealth, the nerve of our strength, the nursery and basis of our naval power. It is our duty, therefore, my lords, if we wish to save our country, most seriously to endeavor the recovery of these most beneficial subjects, and in this perilous crisis, perhaps the present moment may be the only one in which we can hope for success. America is not in that state of desperate and contemptible rebellion which this country has been deluded to believe. It is not a wild and lawless banditti who, having nothing to lose, might hope to snatch something from public convulsions. Many of their leaders and great men have a great stake in this great contest. The gentleman who conducts their armies, I am told, has an estate of four or five thousand pounds a year. And when I consider these things, I cannot but lament the inconsiderate violence of our penal acts, our declaration of treason and rebellion, with all the fatal effects of attainder and confiscation. My lords, I have submitted to you with the freedom and truth which I think my duty, my sentiments on your present awful situation. I have laid before you the ruin of your power, the disgrace of your reputation, the pollution of your discipline, the contamination of your morals, the complication of calamities, foreign and domestic, that overwhelm your sinking country, your dearest interests, your own liberties, the Constitution itself totters to the foundation. All this disgraceful danger, this multitude of misery, is the monstrous offspring of this unnatural war. We have been deceived and deluded too long. Now let us stop short. This is the crisis, the only crisis of time and situation to give us a possibility of escape from the fatal effects of our delusions. But if, in an obstinate and infatuated perseverance in folly, we slavishly echo the peremptory words this day presented to us, nothing can save this devoted country from complete and final ruin. We madly rush into multiplied miseries and confusion worse confounded. And as to the words of the Honorable Lord Suffolk, who undertakes to defend the employment of Indians in the war, and saying that it is perfectly justifiable to use all means that God and nature put into our hands, I am astonished, shocked, to hear such principles confessed, to hear them avowed in this house or in this country, principles equally unconstitutional, inhuman, and unchristian. My lords, I did not attend to have encroached again upon your attention, but I cannot repress my indignation. I feel myself impelled by every duty. My lords, 
we are called upon as members of this house, as men, as Christian men, to protest against such notions standing near the throne, polluting the ear of the majesty. That God and nature put into our hands? I know not what ideas that Lord may entertain of God and nature, but I know that such abominable principles are equally abhorrent to religion and humanity. What? To attribute the sacred sanction of God and nature to the massacres of the Indian scalping, knife, to the cannibal savage torturing, murdering, roasting, and eating, literally, my lords, eating the mangled victims of his barbarous battles. Such horrible notions shock every precept of religion, divine or natural, and every generous feeling of humanity. And my lords, they shock every sentiment of honor. They shock me as a lover of honorable war and a detester of murderous barbarity. These abominable principles and this more abominable avowal of them demand most decisive indignation. I call upon that right reverend bench, those holy ministers of the gospel and pious pastors of our church. I conjure them to join in the holy work and vindicate the religion of their God. I appeal to the wisdom and the law of this learned bench to defend and support the justice of their country. I call upon the bishops to interpose the unsullied sanctity of their lawn, upon the learned judges to interpose the purity of their ermine, to save us from this pollution. I call upon the honor of your lordships to reverence the dignity of your ancestors and to maintain your own. I call upon the spirit and humanity of my country to vindicate the national character. I invoke the genius of the Constitution. From the tapestry that adorns these walls, the immortal ancestor of this noble Lord frowns with indignation at the disgrace of this country. In vain he led your victorious fleets against the boasted armada of Spain. In vain he defended and established the honor liberties, the religion, the Protestant religion of this country against the arbitrary cruelties of popery and the Inquisition. If these more than popish cruelties and inquisitorial practices are let loose among us to turn forth into our settlements, among our ancient connections, friends, and relations, the merciless cannibal thirsting for the blood of man, woman, and child to send forth the infidel savage against whom? Against your Protestant brethren. To lay waste their country, to desolate their dwellings, and extirpate their race and name with these horrible hellhounds of savage war. Hellhounds, I say, of savage war. Spain armed herself with bloodhounds to extirpate the wretched natives of America and we improve on the inhuman example of Spanish cruelty. We turn loose these savage hellhounds against our brethren and countrymen in America of the same language, laws, liberties, and religion endeared to us by every tie that should sanctify humanity. My lords, this awful subject, so important to our honor, our constitution, and our religion, demands the most solemn an effectual inquiry. And I again call upon your lordships 
and the united powers of the state to examine it thoroughly and decisively and to stamp upon it an indelible stigma of the public abhorrence. And I again implore these holy prelates of our religion to do away these iniquities from among us. Let them perform illustration. Let them purify this house and this country from this sin. My lords, I am old and weak, and at present unable to say more. But my feelings and indignation were too strong to have said less. I could not have slept this night in my bed, nor reposed my head on my pillow, without giving this vent to my external abhorrence of such preposterous and enormous principles. That was the incredible speech of Lord Chatham in England's House of Lords in 1777. Upon Britain's learning of the outcome of the Battle of Saratoga, a huge defeat in the American Revolutionary War, as you just heard in this rare piece of history, he railed against England's use of Indians in that war, saying it was both immoral and unconstitutional. This was England's only chance to find a solution to this war. They voted against seeking a peaceful outcome. William Pitt, the Earl of Chatham, was an extraordinary British leader. As Secretary of State and Prime Minister, he had masterminded British strategy in the Seven Years' War, twelve years before. He was known as a friend of the American colonies. He was the one who brought the amendment seeking a peace to the floor this day, November 18, 1777, and it was voted down 97 to 24. This speech, offered here nearly in its entirety, is considered to be one of the world's greatest orations and gives us a unique look at England's desire to stay in the war and to release the hellhounds of war, the Indians, on colonial America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The American Revolutionary War, which lasted for eight bloody years, 1775 to 1783, and was also known as the American War of Independence, began as a conflict between Great Britain and its 13 colonies, which declared independence as the United States of America. It's not an understatement to say that it was a global war, as the fighting took place between England, the American colonies, Spain, and France, and their allies on both land and sea, anywhere the interests of those countries and colonies collided. The loss of lives and the number of conflicts, from large battles to skirmishes to raids, is practically incalculable. In America, the loss of lives on British prison ships to smallpox and to Indian and Loyalist attacks on settlers in the frontiers of New York, Ohio, the Carolinas, and Pennsylvania far outpaced those lost on the battlefields. When we study the history of the American Revolution, we tend to focus on the events that took place in Boston, and New York, Virginia, 
and the Carolinas, with Washington's struggling Continental Army, with British troop movements and occupation of cities such as Charleston and Philadelphia, and finally the surrender of Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown. But nowhere were the effects of the revolution felt more profoundly than on the American colonial frontier, which began in Maine, stretching across northern Vermont, in the hills and valleys of upstate New York, and along the Canadian and New York border, across northern and western Pennsylvania, on to Ohio and Detroit, and then south to Ohio River, and then to Kentucky, then southward to Virginia and the Carolinas. Millions of acres of wilderness, what was called then the frontier. You got a filmmaker's taste of the New York State frontier in the movie The Last of the Mohegans, adapted from James Fenimore Cooper's book by the same name, which did a good job placing the Indians and the colonists, think Daniel Day-Lewis as Hawkeye and West Studi as Magua, at odds with the British, who were basically using the colonists as cannon fodder in their Seven Years' War against the French and their Indian allies. Just 12 short years later, the colonists would find themselves at war with their former allies, the British, and their Indian allies, whose allegiances were split between the colonists and the British, and the British loyalists, the militarized and often bloodthirsty colonists who supported the King of England, and who would turn in their neighbor easily if they believed he was aligned with the dangerous rebels who were trying to overthrow British power and guidance in the fledgling colonies. For hadn't the British offered them protection, and built forts, and brought law and order? And now these damned insolent and undereducated Palatine immigrants from Germany, and their friends the stubborn Scots, and the Irish, and the free blacks, and the rest of the northern Europeans, and every other mutt from the hell holes of the world, were taking up arms against the most powerful army and navy on earth? What a joke. And those European men, the Tories, also called loyalists, in their raids and attacks on white colonial settlers and their families in search of plunder and women, were just as savage as the Indians that they employed in their company. These hated men became the scourge of the frontier, and their stories follow here. The men and women that came to this frontier and stayed wanted simply a place to farm and raise their families. It wasn't gold or greed that drove them. They came from their home countries, some directly, many more after sampling life in the cities along the coast, cities like Philadelphia and Boston and New York, and finding the spread of urbanized civilization too busy and too structured for their liking. Something inside them wanting always to move toward the unknown, toward the west, and wanting a place of their own to clear timber, to build a log home, to settle down and raise their families. These men and women, through their strength and independent spirit, were the ones who forged America and fought for independence. The British had come first to that wild frontier that bordered the Mohawk River, the objective being to colonize for the crown, to establish relations with the Indians. The six Iroquois nations, Mohawk, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, Onondaga, and to the south, Tuscarora, in an effort to drive out the French, who had made inroads to the west in the Ohio River Valley and to the north in Canada. 
the Iroquois tribes inhabited the broad, fertile valley of the Mohawk River, from Albany to the Great Lakes, and they had built a highly organized political, social, and warlike independent nation that, once allied, extracted yearly payments from neighboring tribes when they weren't raiding and kidnapping women and children from them. Their life, customs, and ways are described here as organized, but to any civilized person they lived a savage existence and enjoyed such activities as the kidnap and torture of Indian and white captives with regularity, in the same way we would enjoy a rock concert today. It was entertainment. Modern media has been busy for the past hundred years, turning the noble savage into a kind and good-hearted first American who only killed to prevent whites from taking his land. Most of Indian culture was in warrior mode when the first white men came. John Smith's two companions, on the day he was captured, were boiled alive in a pot, according to his own testimony. Indians warred with each other, constantly, kidnapping, torturing, and killing captives from neighboring tribes. All the men, women, and children participated in creative means of torture. Were there friendly tribes? Yes, some, like the Massasoit in Massachusetts, were open and friendly and remained that way. But the Pequot Indian War in 1656 and King Philip's War in 1675 ignited new hatreds. Most Indians throughout the vast expanses of American frontier as it expanded westward were cautious of Europeans, initially extending open hospitality at first, as in the case of Lewis and Clark's peaceful exploration across the continent in the first years of the 19th century, but becoming more and more hostile as European expansion continued to increase. The Indians' caution was well warranted. Hernando de Soto had done much to warn the Indian as to the treachery and brutality of outside visitors in the two short years between 1540 and 1541. Seventy years prior to John Smith's arrival in Virginia, de Soto went on a rampage from Florida to Georgia, through Tennessee, and then onward to the Mississippi and beyond to what is today present-day Arkansas, where his barbaric acts of kidnapping, looting, and killing of Indians who actually had welcomed him became legend. He was a mass killer and monster representing civilized Spain. And on the peaceful shores of North Carolina, Sir Richard Grenville, with his fleet of seven ships, had led the first expedition of whites and was welcomed by the Indians there, the Croatan and surrounding tribes, whereupon, in the process of receiving hospitality from each village, a silver cup disappeared from his collection. These Indians, as Smith later wrote, very inclined to shoplift whenever the opportunity arose. In retaliation for a stolen cup, Grenville burned down an entire village. My point? Indians warred against each other for centuries before the white man arrived, but the European whites gave many of them a reason not to trust them, and provided a new enemy for many of them. Opikankanov, Chief Powhatan's brother and successor in southern Virginia, wiped out half of the colony of Jamestown in 1622, and again in 1644, before being captured by Governor Berkeley's men and shot. The colonial frontier was a gem to be taken for England and France with vast resources. The British and French built forts, the British more adept at attracting 
and then marrying off newly arrived colonists, two Indians, particularly the Mohawks, and became the self-appointed chief arbiters of Indian relations, having established strong ties through marriage and coercion. Using their chief Indian administrator, Sir William Johnson, they arranged conferences and treaties, negotiated peaces and alliances, and became the power brokers between the colonists and the Six Nations. They also introduced liquor to the Indians, which, next to smallpox, caused the decimation of the Indian tribes more than any other single factor. France challenged this hegemony from 1756 to 1763 in America, and for seven long, bloody years, the colonists joined the British forces and their Indian allies in fighting the French for control and supremacy of what was then the American frontier, stretching from the Great Lakes to Albany. Britain had declared the Ohio River Valley as their own, even sending George Washington there in 1753 on a survey mission that ended up with a skirmish that touched off the Seven Years' War, often called the French and Indian War, although the fighting, which started in 1753-54, made it a ten-year war. The sound of drums beating, the shrill war hoops of Indian braves, Chatham's hellhounds, as they attacked cabins and settlements, the torture, burning, kidnapping, and scalping of white men, women, and children, all became a way of life for settlers on this part of the American frontier throughout upstate New York, Pennsylvania, and the Ohio River Valley. They learned to deal with war and fear and learned to survive from day to day amidst the danger and violence, bear children, farm, and try to prosper. They built forts for protection and formed citizen militias for defense. Many felt they did not need the British government meddling in their affairs or lives. How much of this Indian brutality and warring was encouraged by the English and French? You could argue most of it. That it set the siege for the American Revolution is also very provable. Another eight years of misery, hardships, and Indian attacks on the American colonial frontier, all within a 30-year period between 1753 and 1782. It was a bloody land with no second chances. And the British loyalists and soldiers alike had changed in the early years of the British and Indian Wars against the colonists. They were becoming just as brutal and unhinged as the Indians, showing the same atrocities and sometimes worse. And the colonists fighting them fought savagery with savagery. In this episode, we'll tell the stories of Loyalist Captain James Butler and his rangers, of Joseph Brant, the Mohawk chief, raised among Indians, educated at the school that would later become Dartmouth, then turned savage killer and leader of the Mohawk tribes, as well as others on both sides of the conflict. With the onset of the American Revolution, life and survival became twice as difficult for the colonists. The colonies had declared independence from England. On the frontier, colonists were split into two camps, British loyalists and American patriots, called rebels by the British. Now the British, the Iroquois, and the loyalists were all allied against the colonists that wanted freedom from the crown. If you were a patriot willing to stand against England in that time and place, you were a target for literally everyone, including your neighbors. 
and sometimes your own family. The war on the frontier really began in July of 1775, when in England, Lord Dartmouth, a devout Christian, gave official sanction to turning loose what he termed as the horrible hellhounds, the Indians. Washington's problems were almost exactly similar to those of the British at the start of the Seven Years' War. Now it was the British and Indians who threatened from Canada, putting New York in the crosshairs, and that left five of the six nations in the middle, uncommitted at the beginning, and posing an extreme threat to either side that they acted against. On June 25, 1775, Washington gave 43-year-old Major General Philip Schuyler command of the New York Department, instructing him to watch the movements of British Indian agent Colonel Guy Johnson, who had in the past year inherited his father Colonel William Johnson's British and Mohawk-built empire on the Hudson, and prevent, as Washington wrote, as far as you can, the effect of his influence to our prejudice with the Indians. And Schuyler had no trouble finding out what Johnson was doing, finding out that Johnson had been busy putting together a strong alliance, beginning with Louis St. Luc de la Corne, who had been superintendent of Indian affairs for France and Canada, and his son-in-law, Major Campbell, who now held that position, as well as securing the services of the brutal Colonel John Butler as his right-hand man. Add to this Joseph Brandt, known as Theandega, the Dartmouth-educated Mohawk chief who had been raised under the leadership of Chief Hendrick and was a close friend of Guy Johnson's. The British made sure the Indians were taken care of, sending a full shipload of fowling pieces with blued barrels, walnut stocks, complete with wrought brass and silver sights, and thousands of hatchets, along with brass kettles for the home front, gold lace hats, ruffled shirts, pipes, greatcoats, hundreds of barrels of gunpowder and bullets, and even face paints of blue, yellow, rose, and vermilion, for that artistic but ferocious look, as they stared down at a captive deciding whether to spare them or take their scalp. The Brits thought of everything, right down to the war paint. You have to hand it to them. This is the actual eyewitness account from Mary Jemison, who was the sole survivor of an Indian attack on her cabin in Pennsylvania. On a morning in March 1758, Mary, her mother, and a friend were preparing breakfast when they were startled by the sound of gunfire. They rushed to the door to find a man and his horse lying dead a short distance away. The man was a neighbor, chased and shot by a raiding party that now stormed into the cabin, taking all inside prisoner. Mary begins her story as she and her family are herded through the wilderness towards Fort Duquesne, located on the present-day site of Pittsburgh. She wrote, The party that took us consisted of six Indians and four Frenchmen, who immediately commenced plundering, as I just observed, and took what they considered most valuable, consisting principally of meat, bread, and meal. Having taken as much provision as they could carry, they set out with their prisoners in great haste, for fear of detection, and soon entered the woods. On our march that day, an Indian went behind us with a whip, with which he frequently lashed the children to make them keep up. In this manner we traveled till dark, without a mouthful of food or a drop of water, although we had not eaten since the night before. Whenever the little children cried for water, the Indians would make them drink urine or go thirsty. At night they encamped in the woods, without fire and without shelter, where we were watched with the greatest vigilance. 
extremely fatigued and very hungry, we were compelled to lie upon the ground without supper or a drop of water to satisfy the cravings of our appetites. As in the daytime, so the little ones were made to drink urine in the night, if they cried for water. Fatigue alone brought us a little sleep for the refreshment of our weary limbs, and at the dawn of day we were again started on our march in the same order that we had proceeded the day before. About sunrise we were halted, and the Indians gave us a full breakfast of provision that they had brought from my father's house. Each of us, being very hungry, partook of this bounty of the Indians, except father, who was so much overcome with his situation, so much exhausted by anxiety and grief, that silent despair seemed fastened upon his countenance, and he could not be prevailed upon to refresh his sinking nature by the use of a morsel of food. Our repast being finished, we again resumed our march, and before noon passed a small fort that I heard my father say was called Fort Kanagazig. That was the only time that I heard him speak from the time we were taken till we were finally separated the following night. Toward evening, we arrived at the border of a dark and dismal swamp which was covered with small hemlocks or some other evergreen and various kinds of bushes into which we were conducted, and having gone a short distance, we stopped to encamp for the night. Here we had some bread and meat for supper, but the dreariness of our situation, together with the uncertainty under which we all labored, as to our future destiny, almost deprived us of a sense of hunger, and destroyed our relish for food. As soon as I had finished my supper, an Indian took off my shoes and stockings, and put a pair of moccasins on my feet, which my mother observed, and believing that they would spare my life, even if they should destroy the other captives, addressed me, as near as I can remember, in the following words. My dear little Mary, I fear that the time has arrived when we must be parted forever. Your life, my child, I think will be spared, but we shall probably be tomahawked here in this lonesome place by the Indians. Oh, how can I part with you, my darling? What will become of my sweet little Mary? How can I think of your being continued in captivity without a hope of your being rescued? Oh, that death has snatched you from my embraces in your infancy. The pain of parting then would have been pleasing to what it is now, and I should have seen the end of your troubles. Alas, my dear, my heart bleeds at the thought of what awaits you. But if you leave us, remember, my child, your own name and names of your father and mother. Be careful and not forget your English tongue. If you shall have an opportunity to get away from the Indians, don't try to escape, for if you do, they will find and destroy you. Don't forget, my little daughter, the prayers that I have learned you. Say them often. Be a good child, and God will bless you. May God bless you, my child, and make you comfortable and happy. During this time, the Indians stripped the shoes and stockings from the little boy that had belonged to the woman who was taken with us, and put moccasins on his feet, as they had done before on mine. I was crying. An Indian took the little boy and myself by the hand to lead us off from the company, when my mother exclaimed, Don't cry, Mary. Don't cry, my child. God will bless you. Farewell. Farewell. The Indian led us some distance into the bushes or woods, and there lay down with us to spend the night. The recollection of parting with my tender mother 
kept me awake while the tears constantly flowed from my eyes. A number of times in the night, the little boy begged of me earnestly to run away with him and get clear of the Indians, but remembering the advice I had so lately received and knowing the dangers to which we should be exposed in traveling without a path and without a guide through a wilderness unknown to us, I told him that I would not go and persuaded him to lie still till morning. My suspicion as to the fate of my parents proved too true, for soon after I left them, they were killed and scalped, together with Robert, Matthew, Betsy, and the woman and her two children, and mangled in the most shocking manner. After a hard day's march, we encamped in a thicket where the Indians made a shelter of boughs, and then built a good fire to warm and dry our benumbed limbs and clothing, for it had rained some through the day. Here we were again fed as before. When the Indians had finished their supper, they took from their baggage a number of scalps and went about preparing them for the market, or to keep without spoiling, by straining them over small hoops which they prepared for that purpose, and then drying and scraping them by the fire. Having put the scalps, yet wet and bloody, upon the hoops and stretched them to their full extent, they held them to the fire till they were partly dried and then, with their knives, commenced scraping off the flesh. And in that way they continued to work, alternately drying and scraping them, till they were dry and clean. That being done, they combed the hair in the neatest manner, and then painted it, at the edges and the edges of the scalps, yet on the hoops, red. Those scalps, I knew at the time, must have been taken from our family by the color of their hair. My mother's hair was red, and I could easily distinguish my father's and the children's from each other. That sight was most appalling, yet I was obliged to endure it without complaining. At a grand council meeting hosted by the Continental Congress under Washington's command in Albany in 1775, 700 Indians attended talks for a one-week period, talks that had attempted to persuade the Indians not to get into a fight between America and Great Britain that it would bring the Indians harm. All grand speeches and lots of entertainment, but as it turned out, the 700 were mostly Oneidas, the only one of the five nations that agreed not to fight against the colonists. The Oneidas were a sub-tribe of the Mohawks, who were at that same time in Montreal plotting with the British, with Brant and Johnson specifically, along with the Onondagas, Cayugas, and Senecas, to wipe out the upstart rebels. Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, using all his dramatic talents, issued a proclamation designed to intimidate the Americans, warning that anyone who participated in the unnatural rebellion would be hunted down by his savages, and for this he would stand acquitted in the eyes of God and men, and that in the consciousness of Christianity, that the Americans, if they would not repent and accept the rule of the king, could expect devastation, famine, and every horror that could be thrown upon them. Back in England, Walpole wondered how Burgoyne could reconcile the scalping knife with the gospel. American frontiersmen, accustomed to British holier-than-thou blowhards, laughed. Burgoyne, struck by the indifference and objections to his impassioned threat, and upon actually releasing his hounds of hell to do their destruction, added, after saying, "'Go forth in the night and strike,' added, but I thoroughly oppose bloodshed when you're not faced with arms. Aged men 
women and children, must be held sacred from the knife or hatchet, even in conflict. Back in England, Edmund Burke rose in the House of Commons and asked, What would the keeper of his majesty's lions do? Would he not fling open the dens of the wild beasts and then address them thus? My gentle lions, my humane bears, my tender-hearted hyenas, go forth in the night and strike, but I implore you as you are Christians and members of a civilized society to take care not to hurt any man, woman, or child. So said Edmund Burke in the House of Commons. But as it turned out, Burgoyne had much to learn about his Indian allies and their ways of fighting. As his newly formed army marched toward Bennington, his hellhounds scattered far out in front of his battle lines, looting and destroying, and killing cows to get their bells, which held a special fascination for them. When they reached Bennington and came under fire from Colonel John Stark, the Indians and the Canadians fled in headlong retreat after the first volley. So much for the hounds of hell, at least for now. They would make up for it later. The Battle of Bennington took place on August 16, 1777, in Walloomsack, New York, about ten miles from its namesake, Bennington, Vermont. A rebel force of 2,000 men, primarily New Hampshire and Massachusetts militiamen, led by General John Stark, just mentioned, and reinforced by Vermont militiamen, led by Colonel Seth Warner and members of the Green Mountain Boys, decisively defeated a detachment of General John Burgoyne's army, led by Lieutenant Colonel Friedrich Baum, and supported by additional men under Lieutenant Colonel Heinrich von Bremen. Baum's detachment was a mixed force of 700 composed primarily of Hessians, but also including small numbers of dismounted Brunswick Dragoons, Canadians, Loyalists, and Indians. He was sent by Burgoyne to raid Bennington in the disputed New Hampshire Grants area for horses, draft animals, provisions, and other supplies. Believing the town to be only lightly defended, Burgoyne and Baum were unaware that Stark and 1,500 militiamen were stationed there. After a rain-caused standoff, Stark's men enveloped Baum's position, taking many prisoners and killing Baum. Reinforcements for both sides arrived as Stark and his men were mopping up, and the battle restarted with Warner and Stark driving away Bremen's reinforcements with heavy casualties. The battle was a major strategic success for the American cause and considered the turning point of the Revolutionary War. It reduced Burgoyne's army in size by almost a thousand men, led his Indian support to largely abandon it, and deprived him of much-needed supplies such as mounts for his cavalry regiments, draft animals, and provisions, all factors that contributed to Burgoyne's eventual defeat at Saratoga. That's how important the Battle of Bennington was. That victory, which was considered to be a part of the Saratoga campaign, galvanized colonial support for the independence movement and played a key role in bringing France into the war on the rebel side. But the unexpected battle in Bennington was only a part of Burgoyne's strategy. Another part of his attack involved an expedition that was headed through Lake Ontario, Oswego, and the Mohawk Valley, the destination being Albany, where he could strike at the very heart of the rebels. It was in the Mohawk Valley that the kind of Indian warfare he had promised took place, now aided and abetted by the Tories of the region, the Loyalists and the Indians, and it was with those groups combined, the Loyalists and the Indians, 
that the real brutality took place. Sir William Johnson's son, John, had been made a colonel and enlisted a Tory regiment consisting of two battalions called the Royal Greens. Colonel Butler had a similar force called the Tory Rangers. In late 1777, he was captured by Continental Army troops while trying to recruit rangers at Shoemaker Tavern in German Flats, New York. He was sentenced to death for spying by Lieutenant Colonel Marinus Willett, was imprisoned in Albany, but after a few months, Colonel Butler had escaped and returned to Canada. Their first obstacle was the old Fort Stanwix, once a well-fortified post which lay between the Mohawk River and Wood Creek, the nearby connecting waterway to Lake Ontario. Burgoyne sent Barry St. Ledger toward the fort with 875 men in August of 77, hoping the Royal Greens and the Tory Rangers, with Joseph Brandt and his Mohawks, could get some action. When the Americans saw the lions at the gate, they correctly saw themselves as the only force dividing the attackers from the peaceful valley and settlements beyond. After two days of stout resistance, they were joined by the militia en route from Tryon County, 800 of them led by a Palatinate German named Nicholas Herkup, Brigadier General of the state militia. St. Ledger's scouts had known of Herkimer's advance and had plotted a trap for them at a wide ravine six miles east of the fort near Ariskin. St. Ledger's deployed all of Brant's Indians and a few companies of rangers to wipe them out. When Herkimer's men came under attack, the Indians had expected them to break and run, but these men were well-trained and they had courage. Completely surrounded, they took cover and fought back, making every shot count. Herkimer took a ball in the leg in the first volley, which took his horse down, but he kept directing the battle calmly, still in the saddle, as the horse sank to its knees, then got off, still smoking his pipe, and a few men helped him to support himself against a tree while he tried to stem the flow of blood from his leg. The men slowly fell back until there was an irregular circle around him and a classic struggle continued, now hand-to-hand, knife tomahawk at some parts, rifles still firing at others. The Indians, knowing that it took some time to reload after every shot, would wait until after the shot and then rush. At one point, there was a brief rain shower which dampened everyone's powder, both sides holding fire, and during those few minutes, Herkimer rearranged his men in twos so that one could fire while the other reloaded. And when the firing started again, charging Indians were hit and taken out of action. Soon after, the cry of Una, Una, was heard from the Indians, meaning they were retreating, and they disappeared into the woods. Their allies, the Tories, followed, preparing now to break camp to rejoin the larger force, which was waiting their arrival at their now lightly guarded camp outside Fort Stanwix. The militiamen at Fort Stanwix, knowing all the Indians had gone with the rangers to ambush Herkimer, took advantage of the lack of guards to hit the camp, running off the few defenders, one of whom was John Johnson, the commander, who left in his shirt sleeves, leaving valuable orders behind for intelligence. It was a brilliant raid, not only turning up paperwork, but for giving the militiamen the time to pick up all the Indians' deerskins and packs, knowing that this would put a big dent in their trust of the British to run any kind of organized campaign. And it did. The Americans had yet another ruse up their sleeve, this one hatched by Major General Benedict Arnold, who hadn't yet turned colors on them, and came up with a plan to use the services of a mentally challenged man named Host Van Schuyler 
to put the fear into the Indians' planning on attacking Fort Stanwix. Arnold's men asked Schuyler to remove his coat, and then they shot it full of holes, after which he put it on again, and then headed for the camp of the enemy, trailed by an Oneida accomplice whose plan was to back him up after he reached it. He rushed into the Indian camp, which had already been torn up by the raid from the fort, telling how he had escaped from thousands of American troops who were within a day's march from this location. Hanyo said he came here to warn his red brothers, and his words were immediately confirmed by the Oneida who had followed him. It was a brave move on both their parts, and it could have gotten them killed, but this time it worked. The Indians, after the failure of the ambush, and after returning to see their camp had been raided, had had enough. They headed out, and nothing St. Ledger said or did had any effect on their decision. It all broke up. The Indians walked out of St. Ledger's camp, and Fort Stanwix remained standing, leaving the Americans able to turn their undivided attention to the Battle of Saratoga, where the first really decisive battle of the Revolution was fought, ending the British threat from Canada. The Ranger forces and John Johnson, with the British at Fort Niagara on Lake Ontario, spent the winter of 77-78 plotting attacks that would begin in the spring. The British, with their Tory and Indian allies, were receiving a steady supply of both live prisoners and scalps, both of which they paid handsomely for. Women captives were used by the British officers and Tories. The Indians enjoyed torturing their captives, as is confirmed in this survivor statement. In October, Lieutenant Asa Stevens was detailed on a scout by the Committee of Inspection with nine men, who returned bringing in five suspected persons as prisoners. In the latter part of November, Lieutenant John Jenkins, while out on a scout at Wyalusing, was betrayed by the Tories into the hands of a body of Indians that infested that locality, and was taken by the latter to Fort Niagara. Upon report of this fact at Wyoming, Colonel Nathan Dennison of the 24th Connecticut Regiment of Militia, organized his little force and prepared to march into that locality. He reported that on the 20th of December, being informed that a band of Tories were forming on the north and westward of said town of Westmoreland in order to stir up the Indians of Tioga to join said Tories to kill and destroy the inhabitants of upstate New York, he ordered part of his regiment to be immediately equipped and marched to suppress the conspirators. The party marched about 80 miles up the river and took several Tories, about 30, and happily consented the Tioga Indians and entirely disbanded the conspirators. Eighteen of these prisoners were sent to Connecticut, where they were received and treated as prisoners of war, having been taken in arms against the United States. About the 13th of February, 1778, Amos York and Lemuel Fitch were taken prisoner from the same locality and hurried off the Niagara. Richard Fitzgerald was captured at the same time, but being an old man, they discharged him. The prisoners, captured by the Indians and Tories, were kept at Niagara all winter, among a camp of British, Indians, and Tories, of the most brutal and degraded character. Many of the latter were from the Susquehanna, above Wyoming, and hence bore a particular enmity to the prisoners, who, from this cause, suffered many hardships and injuries from the hands of their captors and keepers. The force wintering at Niagara had a great part of it at least been with General St. Ledger in his attack on Fort Schuyler in August previous, and in consequence of their defeat there by the American forces under Colonel Gansevoort, 
were greatly exasperated, and for this reason were exceedingly venomous and cruel in their treatment of the prisoners in their charge. They received neither clothes, shoes, blankets, shelter, nor fire, were kept starved for provisions, and what they received was of the worst kind, such as spoiled flour, biscuits full of maggots and moldy. The Indians would crowd around them with knives in their hands and feel of them to know who was the fattest. They dragged one of the prisoners out of the guard and with the most lamentable cries tortured him for a long time. And both the Indians and the Tories said they ate him, as it appears they did another on an island in Lake Ontario. DeVoe says of this terrible place, Niagara was the headquarters of all that was barbarous, unrelenting, and cruel. They were congregated the leaders and chiefs of those bands of murderers and miscreants who carried death and destruction into the remote American settlements. There, civilized Europe reveled with savage America, and ladies of education and refinement mingled in the society of those whose only distinction was to wield the tomahawk and the bloody scalping knife. There were the squaws of the forest raised to eminence, and the most unholy alliances between them and officers of the highest rank smiled upon and countenanced. There in this stronghold, like a nest of vultures, securely for seven years, they sallied forth and preyed upon the distant settlements of the Mohawk and Susquehanna valleys. It was the depot of their plunder, and there they planned their forays, and there they returned to feast until the time for action should come again. I have often spoken of Japanese atrocities in World War II, and it was just recently brought to light that American soldiers had a much greater chance of surviving captivities under Nazis than the Japanese. But the more I look into the American Revolution and the British treatment of captives, the more I realize that the British, at least in the America of 1778 to 1783, with their prison ships and frontier forts like Niagara, were just as brutal as the Japanese, and when not committing the atrocities themselves, certainly allowed it to happen on their watch. It's a stain on England's reputation that will never go away. That same winter, the British occupied Philadelphia, living it up with parties and social affairs that mixed the wealthy Tory citizens of Philadelphia with British officers, while Washington and what was left of his beleaguered Continental Army starved and died of frostbite in Valley Forge, just 30 miles away and southwest of the city. Things were desperate at Valley Forge, with the Continental Congress having escaped to a little town about 40 miles to the west, with members of that Congress trying to get Washington replaced and purposely holding back critical supplies in an effort to see him fail. He must have felt at that time that not only was he fighting the largest military force in the world, he was fighting half his countrymen who had turned Tory, and his fledgling rebel government as well. But he never wavered. He had a vision of a self-governing country run by free people who would elect their own leaders, and no one was going to shake his faith. In 1778, in June, the Tory forces swept out of Fort Niagara to launch an attack on the Wyoming Valley of northeast Pennsylvania, just below the New York border. This was a fertile and beautiful place lying along the north branch of the Susquehanna River and surrounded by rolling hills and green mountains. The farms and livestock became a major source of supply for the Continental Army. 
Colonel Butler's expedition was composed of 400 white men, rangers, royal greens, and other Tories, and about 500 Indians, most of them Senecas, who were the most belligerent of the six nations. It was this force which perpetrated the worst horror of the Revolution, the Wyoming Massacre. Tory spies from the Wyoming Valley settlements with grudges against their fellow citizens, or families, as it turned out in some cases, and, with desires to take their belongings, had long since informed the British High Command of the fact that this settlement would be basically unprotected after the spring planting, and that it had been a major supplier of grain to the Continental Army, and that they had now returned to the community awaiting their chance to kill and rape and become a part of the murder and mayhem. The towns and the farms struck by the surprise attack were nearly defenseless, most of their able-bodied men having gotten in what crops they could and headed to fight for the Connecticut militia, for this part of Pennsylvania had been purchased by Connecticut just years before, and the state of Pennsylvania had not been fully resolved as it is today. Those who remained had a tough but inexperienced commander, another butler, Colonel Zebulon Butler, who could only muster about 300 fighters, mostly old men and young boys, whom he ended up foolishly deploying in the open. In Part 2, we'll begin with the 1778 survivor's account of the massacre called the Battle of Wyoming. We'll also relive the British and Indian Wars of the American Revolution, putting you in charge of deciding whether or not America becomes a free country or a British colony. We'll also cover the Cherry Valley Massacre and Sullivan's march to destroy the Six Nations, the Battle at Elmira, Tory and Indian atrocities under Johnson, Butler, and Brant, the courage of George Rogers Clark in Kentucky, the Massacre of Innocents at the Moravian Village, Crawford's loss on the Upper Sandusky, and his capture and torture by Simon Gurdy, and much more. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This story required a tremendous amount of research, which I enjoy, because I believe it is important to illustrate the difficulties and danger that our early pioneers faced as they moved westward into America from the East Coast. These were mostly white Europeans, led by Germans, Dutch, Irish, and Scots, by no means the first settlers to invade Indian territory to colonize in North America, the Spanish having been busy settling Florida, parts of the Southwest, and California before them. But what I think was unique about them was that they always longed for the unknown, their eyes always looking west, and they were unstoppable despite incredible hardships. I think too little is said of them and their courage in history books, while far too many negatives are taught to young students in an effort to somehow diminish the achievements of European migration across North America. They weren't given some kind of easy pass, and they didn't have any help. They came with nothing. They cut down trees. They built log homes. They cleared rocks, planted seeds, fought extreme weather, fought Indians, fought British, and often died young. And yes, the hostile Indians, immersed in warrior cultures, fought back. Most were incredibly savage by comparison, and expert in means of guerrilla warfare. Eastern tribes have been documented as sometimes eating parts of their victims, as told here, in a first-hand account, and as I have read in other accounts. Their methods of torture were extreme. 
The Indians had been practicing that on each other's tribal enemies for centuries. The arrival of the white man gave them a whole new enemy to fight, and they fought well, but brutally. I have had listeners write to tell me that all U.S. cavalrymen were murderous dogs who deserved to die for killing innocent women and children. Many history classes spend most of the time teaching how the white man cheated, lied, killed all the buffalo, slaughtered all the Indian women and children, gave them all smallpox blankets to keep them warm, and ruined a perfectly wonderful paradise with their arrival. They conveniently leave out the fact that nearly all tribes fought each other to survive and kidnapped, tortured, and killed innocents from each other's tribes for sport. Their women and children would participate in the torture of captives. Quite unlike most European culture, after the Dark Ages at least, both sides, Indian and white, did try many times to reach alliances, but the Indians were at a disadvantage with differences in cultures and could only earn respect with the bow, the gun, and the knife. The great father in Washington couldn't care less about their plight at most times, and they got screwed every time. Treaties were broken regularly. Their downfall had begun with DeSoto, and it was a 350-year slide after that. Yes, there were many brutal, one-sided attacks on Indians that should never have been allowed to take place. But I doubt if that listener had learned much about those atrocities the Indians had committed since the arrival of the first white man. The colonists' life was hard work from the time they woke up until the time they went to sleep. The women who survived and thrived were tough cookies, and the men were independent, can-do people who pushed hard and took no guff from anyone. The last thing they wanted in their lives was to have to pay homage to a foreign king. I had the opportunity to sit and talk and share a beer with the chief of an old eastern tribe on the back porch of his reservation home on the York River in Virginia. That year he was busy helping to build a display for their tribe at the Smithsonian Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. He talked about how his people had mixed so much with whites that few even looked like Indians anymore. It was getting tougher to get movie roles as they weren't bronzed enough. In Yorktown, while enjoying a panoramic view of the river from the porch of my new friend, he spoke of the old days and how Whitey had screwed them so many times they'd stopped counting by 1850. But he also talked about all the efforts to honor his tribe and to recognize their importance in helping the colonists survive not only that first winter at Jamestown, but through the years. We discussed racism and schools, reservation life and problems, casinos, the plight of the lost colony down in North Carolina, and the usual stuff men talk about over a cold can of beer. He was a good man and honest and proud. They tried for years to maintain purity in the tribe there, encouraging their younger men and women to marry only full Indian. But it has been a losing cause. Many young ones leave, he said. Some stay and take on the responsibility of keeping the tribe intact, but many are tempted by what's outside. They want to go to college and become doctors and lawyers and professional people and move to other cities. Only a few come back. At the end of part two, I'll share another talk with an Indian, now a business owner, who had some hilarious stories about his work as an extra in the movie The Last of the Mohegans. By the way, if you're a fan of the Old West, check the Doctor History podcast. That's doctor spelled 
D.R. Period, featuring Tales of the Old West with Ken Turner and his radio sidekick and rodeo star, Zeb Bell, who, by the way, has invited me as a guest on his radio show next week to talk about a favorite subject of mine, Tom Horn. And I'll run that interview as a special episode here in a few weeks. Anyway, check out the Doctor History Podcast for some great Western episodes. We ask that if you enjoy our shows and would like to support us monthly or just one time with any amount, to visit our Patreon site. Patreon is a place people go to support creators. It is the largest and best known of those types of sites. And our address is patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Thank you. Join us at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes or Twitter at 1001 Podcast. You can catch all four of our shows at Apple Podcast App, at Stitcher.com, at Player.fm, at CastBox.fm, or anywhere great podcasts are found. We're leaving lots of links in the show notes for you. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We'll be back in a week with Part 2 of Drums Along the Mohawk. Testing, testing, one, two, testing, testing, one, two.